tonight we're launching this report, Understanding and Policing Gangs, which is the culmination of a project um, which has taken about a year. And uh, what we do is we convene a conference and we then produce a draft report. That draft report is then refined at a, at a smaller consultation. Uh, and then we produce the final report. And, um, and working with us all through that process is a research associate, and Dr. Rob McLean is here with us this evening, and Rob is, uh, is the author uh, of the report. Just to explain the format of the evening, um, Rob is going to speak for about five minutes to introduce the report, and then we're going to get reflections and responses to, uh, to the report. First of all, from Olivia Pinkney on my right. Olivia is Chief Constable of Hampshire. She's also the chair of the steering committee that organises the Cumberland Lodge uh, Police Conference. So it's great to have you with us, Olivia. Then we'll hear from Simon Harding on, over on my uh, right, Professor of Criminology from the University of West London. And then from Noel Williams on my left, Criminal and Social Justice Policy Advisor. So we should be in for a rich uh, fair from them. They'll respond for about 10 minutes each, and that leaves plenty of time for Q&A. And then uh, we'll end promptly at 7.45. We'll end the formal proceedings at 7.45, but there will be refreshments served here. So do please stay and mingle and, and chat uh, afterwards. That's what we're going to do. Without any more ado, Rob, over to you. Uh, I just find it possible apologise for the strong Glaswegian accent. <laughs> speak. <laughs> so when I speak, Messies will probably be like, what is that guy saying? So don't worry, I don't understand yours. So first of all, just uh, briefly introduce myself. I'm a university lecturer at the University of the West of Scotland, and I had been approached by Cumberland Lodge to basically put together this report, just going for like, a series of events, conferences, and sending a lot of material over that Jan <laughs> criticised and then sent back and I had to edit it. But I, it was good, I, says, uh, I was quite happy to accept the role because coming from Scotland, obviously a lot of the issues that we read, you know, that dominate the headlines happen in England and Wales. And it was good for myself because it allowed myself to actually see what was going on more in England and Wales and what these were kind of being faced with. And then do a good kind of comparative analysis. So it was good for myself to take myself out of my comfort zone and also to be able to bring down some perspectives that aren't just solid, maybe London centred as well. So, as I attended the three-day event, and when I attended the three-day event with Cumberland Lodge, I said there seemed to be uh, just reoccurring themes that just kept coming out and coming out. And I've just speaking to my colleague here, literally just before we started, about, you know, these kind of themes that come out. One of the themes that came out quite strongly, of course, was the rise of organised crime, and in particular the rise of the illegal drugs market, and how it's kind of changed organised crime and changed the face of how criminals uh, interact, you know, and how they operate, and how police are finding it very difficult to get on top of these kind of issues. One of the other things that came out but was, of course, the lack of resources, the continued welfare, cuts to welfare, uh, but kind of, if you have it, a policy of austerity, and a lot of time people would say we know what to do but we just lack the funds and we lack the backing to do it and I've, a lot of the stuff like these recommendations that I've put into the report and when I've been speaking to other people it's stuff that I was learning about as an undergraduate student and we've been learning about it for a long time and I've sometimes feel I'm just replicating a lot of that so a lot of time like, it's kind of just like an analogy where 
there's a really good drug market. Mm. If you have it, it's kind of like the sea. Just making this up on the spot, so I'll get this here. It's a really good drug market, it's kind of like the sea, and all the criminals involved are kind of like speed boats and the police and the, um, the state is like a massive oil tanker trying to catch them all. They're just going everywhere. And it just seems to be a wee bit of a pointless chase, because we're not getting anywhere. You know, war and drugs clearly been lost to war and gangs. It's clearly been lost to war and so forth. There's a lot of other issues. Uh, that we just continue to face as a society and we're going about maybe doing it the wrong way, approaching it in the wrong way, we become stuck in that kind of rhetoric of thinking and these narratives that come up. So there's lots of different points that I don't really want to touch upon because I know my colleagues here will be touching upon it, so it's just really giving a general overarching view the findings, if you will, that I've kind of taken away uh, from the event. So after I did the three-day event, uh, I went back to Scotland and I actually got me thinking quite a lot, and I wanted to really think, well, things I was getting told was gangs in Glasgow are different from gangs in London. People in London were saying gangs in London are different from gangs in Liverpool. People in Liverpool were saying gangs are different from gangs in Birmingham, which is true. They all share similarities, but they all, of course, have lots of differences. And all the populations have similarities, but they also face their own kind of issues as well. So I wanted to write a wee bit about, you know, the root causes you know, that could be put across the board. What is the root causes that are you know, causing this? Uh, and I've actually very quickly turned around that publication. It was my book just got published. Not just giving me that self, but I say <laughs> But my book uh, got published, uh, Counting the Lines of Other Markets and Criminal Networks, if you want to check it out. And it just talks a wee bit about this. <coughs> and basically, it's just going to the root problem where I talk about, you know what, actually what's happening in society is gangs are simply reflecting the social ills that we face as a society, and it comes out in many different ways and can be manifested in different ways according to specific contexts. But overall, it's the same social ills that we're facing here in Britain that just continue to pop up time and time again. Some of these things, what we've had is, of course, like I said, the rise of organised crime, the growth of the illegal drugs market. But what the real illegal drug market is really doing is it's, like I said, up in Glasgow, we suffered the deindustrialisation, which absolutely ravished, ravished Glasgow, you know, you can check the level of deprivation on deprivation maps, and it's just like a city of red with small patches of blue up the west. And <coughs> then what's happened is there's just been these big, massive economic gaps that have been left behind and voids left behind. And what happens is communities become very marginalised and stigmatised, and the people and the youth that are growing up in that, particularly youth who are now dealing with social media and consumer society, aren't actually able to get the opportunities to succeed in what they're trying to do to get really get places. And what happens is, like Dacon talks about, and we're going to America, he talks about the hyper ghetto. What happens is the drugs actually becomes a commodity. It starts to get distributed. So yeah, drug markets are bad, but if you go down to Vegas and Park and Paisley, drug markets actually also provide a lot of people with a means of living. And it also provides the community with a, a commodity that can be transferred and it allows the community, believe it or not, in some ways grow and shops and that appear. That wouldn't happen without that. And a lot of time what's happening is the drugs are just filling these gaps. Also, of course, when we talk about gangs, gangs are problems, gangs are problems. Gangs have all just started off as territorial youth groups. Of course, you just go back several decades. But what happens is because of the ties to territory, they become the shop floor for distributing drugs. And all that's happened over time is the drugs market and gangs have become closer and intertwined. And we're complaining about county lines, what to do with it. And of course, county lines is just an inevitable outcome. You know, oh, I can't tell the future, but we were writing about stuff like this years ago. You know, of course, this is going to be happening. And then all we've got now is we've been saying, like, if you just look at the central belt across Scotland, and of course there's 
Simon will probably maybe go in a wee bit more depth here in London. But what you've got is, of course, the tension that we apply upon these gangs, but not effectively dealing with them, just allows them to refine and become stronger. So if you look at the central belt right across Scotland, every single gang there is aligned to two original crime families that were never dealt with in the first place. And now they've led on to lead like a 200 million uh, industry, you know, and have weapons such as machine guns, glocks, grenades, you know, this is ridiculous, it's getting out of hand. So what we do but is we look to the police and we say fix our problems. And that's wrong because at the end of the day these are social issues. We are looking to the police and saying police, you know, fix our problems and in the meantime we're gonna cut the resources we give you to fix them and then we we take away all the frontline services for obviously inside what's going on in the communities. I mean you go to the communities like this talk about Gagas Park and you go down to Dublin and stuff and I'm sure you have it here in London and I've seen it myself and Liverpool and Newcastle and that and a lot of the communities actually have nothing. All they used to have is where they had the youth centres, they're closed, they had the boxing gyms, they're closed, they had the football centres, they're closed, they didn't have anything. I mean so what do we really expect here? But then like I said we continue to look to the police and ask them to solve our issues. And it kind of captured it, uh, a police officer was talking at uh, the three day event and on the third day uh, was speaking and everybody, all the practitioners and that were there and what had happened is it says about the rise of gangs and I can't remember we're talking about uh, other issues. But then somebody says what about drugs? So the police, police officer says I'd like to apologise uh, and obviously what happened with drugs getting out of control, we took our eye off the ball because I think it was sort of like that shifted our attention or a glare towards terrorism, terrorism and that allowed the drug market, market to control and everybody was nodding and I was thinking that's actually the wrong way to think about that because the police never had control of the drug markets. It was always there. All that happened is they would never have been able to control it. It's actually withdrawal of the welfare, welfare state. Of course it's the economic gaps that are produced, it's the marginalisation, different communities that has actually allowed us to grow so it was always going to grow but rather than people acknowledging that and saying to the officer actually that's probably not quite correct we're all nodding and saying yeah i was taking off the ball and i just felt that kind of captured what was going on there like i said so <coughs> just a final thing i wanted to touch upon is people were responding and saying because i'm from scotland of course they think i'm about the public health model you know for some reason they think we always Criminologists in Scotland, we all know about public health models, so they're saying, oh, but we do the public health model. And actually, it just comes down to one simple thing, uh, and I was speaking to, I think it was Will Winden about this, and it's just come down to the attitude, changing attitudes. So I can, we can put in all these strategies and we can say, we'll do this, we'll do that, but what it really needs to be is a changing attitude, not just within law enforcement, because what happened is, of course, during the period that I grew up in Glasgow, uh, Glasgow produced, I think it was. Uh, three times the level of violence than London did. I mean, it's a bit bad place to grow up, I suppose I grew up in it, so I didn't see it like that. But you had very high levels of violence and very high levels of knife crime, of course it was branded murder capital of Europe, it's always had these different issues that have been going on. And when knife crime decreased, decreased significantly, you had the introduction of ERU, and you had people talk about the public health model. But the public health model, and specifically through the BRU, was only really implemented in the East End and the North Side of Glasgow actually rates of like knife crime was decreasing in gang violence was decreasing across the region where they weren't even active. The real driving factor behind it was a change in attitude and that was coming from people. Uh, people just kind of had enough. There's almost every community like I've, I've stayed in a number of areas and I can tell you every area I've stayed in a scheme which we call them in Scotland might only be like literally a block of 200 houses and every area I stayed in a youth was killed at some point when I stayed there and people just had enough 
And what was driving it was actually the attitude, people's attitude and a will to change. And the difference, though, I did notice with the public health model being implemented, as I was just, you know, I was also speaking to my colleague here about it. Just an example, I won't say the name of the individual, but there was quite a, a case where there was a little bit of public outcry uh, in one of the areas I grew up in. Two gangs were fighting, and one person put one gang, they were only about 15 years old, took out a knife and stuck it through that person's neck, stabbed another boy, stabbed another boy in the spine, stabbed another boy, and of course they were all rushed to hospital. It was an absolute tragic scene. And what happened <coughs> is the two gangs decided after that, let's actually not fight because this is getting way out of hand. And there wasn't any trouble for about a year. But nobody spoke about it. Nobody went into the schools and actually, I mean, I remember going into school and nobody said, I mean, the boy was actually killed outside the school, you know, nobody actually says, oh, somebody had been murdered. Right? And uh, what had happened is nobody actually spoke about it. And this was before like, the rise of the RU and stuff. And <coughs> what happened is that group then went on, uh, and Marcel Moss, actually my partner, Ross Jupiter at Buckley, is went on and did studies with like, this kind of group of individuals for this area. And they went on and actually committed a series of murders and several of the individuals became really high profile criminals. And actually when they look back at it, just think a lot of them were suffering from like post-traumatic stress syndrome. Nobody spoke about it. There was nothing in the schools. But the difference I've seen is when something happened later on in, in the area, and obviously the VRU and you had the kind of public health model uh, operating this time, is you did get that counselling in schools and you did get people approaching you and talking about it and you did get like, you know, uh, people actually mentioning what was going on as people speaking about it in the communities and different agents come down to the communities and, you know, just off on a hand, off on supports. And I think what it is, is just that change of attitude. And that's really what this uh, report's trying to put across. I said, so in the report, you see a lot of recommendations, which are very specific in terms of where it's implementing this now, but we always have this way of thinking. But that's because when I was wanting to really put in the report, a lot of the stuff about the ideological changes that really need to happen, nobody really cares or wants to hear the changes. You know, and a lot of time it can sound airy fairy, so hence why all it's not in there. But that's really all what I say. So I just actually. Well, thank you very much, in, much indeed. So the police are going to we're gonna say, Alexa, how do we solve policing uh, <laughs> gang and driving? But hopefully uh, we've shut it up now. But um, Olivia, um, is the police being asked to do the impossible? And um, if does this help? Yeah, so I mean. Absolutely, it, it helps. And in, in my remarks, I won't deal with all of the recommendations, Rob, but first of all, thank you, because I think in, you know, in one place you've captured so much of the evidence for us and, and in very, very clearly articulated the challenges that remain, despite, you know, as you say, for some time, you know, a wicked problem for, for many years. Uh, so I cover uh, Hampshire, uh, the Isle of Wight, Portsmouth, Southampton, um, and I see the fallout of this every day in my patch, in my cities, my towns, uh, the communities that we serve and the tragedies that come from it. Um, and I'm with you, I am utterly tired of that. So I want to just give some kind of remarks from, from being Chief Constable of Hampshire, but also I'm the National Police Chief Council Lead for Local Policing. So a lot of that kind of weaves in as well. So I won't cover it all uh, in, in 10 minutes, but I want to touch on some of it. And genuinely welcome it. I think you've kind of helped certainly from my perspective in talking to some colleagues around this, really helped us kind of understand the different types of gangs and gangs activity, Rob, which is really helpful and helps us shed new light on that. Um, until last week, I was also the lead nationally on children and young people, and so one of the things that jumped out in the report was around the, the young street gangs, the YSGs, as you call them, and some thoughts about 
you know, what we can learn and do better there. And your report really lays out what a, a, a young street gang is, why it exists, the hole, to your point, that it's filling. Um, and actually, that's not new. That's been going on for centuries. Um, so what's different now and, and why now? Um, because actually, you know, young people, predominantly young men, of course, you know, they are keen to come together. They're keen to share space. It's where, you know, a lot of those social norms are, are produced and many for good. Um, so why is it we're particularly worried uh, right now? And why is it that, as you say, it's kind of territorial rather at the beginning uh, focused on crime? So the main purpose of YSG is to socialise. Um, and in, you know, in my time, um, particularly looking at children and young people, I've met so many, too many, uh, young men for whom their, you know, their life experience was almost predictable um, and the, you know, the sadness that comes with that so generalising, but I will, uh, you know, not having a, a, a male role model, often from a single parent family, often with a learning difficulty, often therefore struggling academically to fit in, often with a bereavement or a real kind of, you know, learning point that, or a massive kind of shift um, in their home life, which causes a very natural and understandable outburst of anger that they find hard to contain. You know, so far we can all understand that and then from that and Rob your report describes it you know so often an exclusion from school can happen and then we get in this spiral that Rob reports um, peer group often made up of young men of a very similar age many of whom have shared similar adverse childhood experiences so they come together for this sense of identity the sense of belonging and we all have that don't we as a real kind of basic human need so so in terms of how we're going about it, because we have been struggling with this wicked problem for a while, I think one of the, my reflections is that this is a chronic condition, using health language, but we seem to be very happy to, to focus on acute tactics. And, and one of the arguments is that we need to do both. So this is a chronic issue. It's a societal chronic issue. And cr acute tactics in their own right aren't good enough. And you say it in your report, you talk about that balance of enforcement and empathy and social delivery, mentoring, you know, and so the list goes on. And I absolutely agree with you on that. And I think if we do look back at 11 years now, when austerity began, not just in policing, but across public service, there is a shift in what is available to, to communities. And from a policing perspective, there is no question that one of the areas that suffered in policing as a result of austerity, necessary choices that were made, was a reduction, not a removal, but a reduction certainly and a shrinking of really dedicated officers and staff who know their communities well and who know these young men well. So, you know, that is not anything that anyone would want, but we absolutely know. It's not the complete answer, but it is an aspect of it. Um, but I think the plus side is, if you go way back to what the British policing model is all about, is that we police with communities, not to them, so it is really welcome, uh, you know, that there is going to be a, a regrowth. Um, it will take us a while, but a regrowth of, of numbers in policing. That is absolutely welcome because Robert Peel said the absence of crime is, is, is the success of policing. And we have a model that works with communities. So I think we've got a real head start, actually. I think there is going to be a reinvestment at whatever level is affordable um, in communities uh, from a policing perspective. And that can only be a good thing education system you know it is really easy and I never do say that education is the answer to everything they've only got young people for maximum six hours a day you know there's another 
there's another 18 hours where young people are not in the school environment. But it is really important. Uh, and there's some fantastic examples that I've seen um, around the UK of the school environment where schools with wider services are working so hard to keep young people in school. Because if they are in school, that is the best opportunity for them to be acquiring the skills they need, to develop the uh, jobs they need, to have that connection they need. But also, it is all about that more positive role modelling, which is in that environment. So keeping young people in school as much as possibly can be done does have to be a focus, and you pick that up. So there are some really great examples of that around the country. There are also some kind of less good ones. Um, and policing has a part to play in that, but it isn't the answer for it. Um, one of the things that policing can do in this space, and, and there are lots of forces doing this really well now, is helping my colleagues uh, understand trauma-informed practice. So looking behind the behaviour and seeing what it is that creates this often un a a you know, angry young man, as Rob talks about, you know, and, and coming into the arms of the police, but for policing in its wider sense to really understand that. Not be all soft about it, but actually really understand it and be professional about it and look behind the behaviour. So there's lots of that going on. And one example I, I, I often come back to, I met a man, he's an adult now, but he tells a story to me um, about when he was a boy and he was a very young lad in his home, dad had been in and out of prison and in the early hours of the morning the police bash his door down, come in dressed all in black as we are um, and were searching his house. They didn't tell him why, they didn't ask him anything and he remembers, and I understand why they did it, they ripped the head off his teddy bear and they were looking for drugs I'm sure, you know, that's what was going on. But in terms of his image of what the policing was about, now, there's trauma-informed practice means that we still do those drug searches, but we do them in a very different way. And we do not re-traumatise young people by doing things. And I'm sure those officers at that time, you know, I'm going back a few years, but they didn't realise. And that story and that image made that young man so angry about policing and would never, ever, ever trust us and was angry against the system. We don't do that anymore. But you can kind of absolutely see how, how that happens. So we know about adult childhood experiences. We know about trauma-informed practice. We also know, though, what builds resilience and stops someone who has got those cards in life dealt against them following that path. We know what works about it. It is about having a stable relationship with an adult. It is about participation in community. It is about uh, financial security. And so that kind of strengthening resilience in young people who are growing up with a bunch of adverse childhood experiences is down to really great commissioning it's down to really good services being available for them um, and I know Rob you've touched on that as well so beyond um, the YSGs then today um, policing the College of Policing launched uh, our public health principles it is pure coincidence that it's today but I'll take it as a, as a, a plan um, and so those now exist and are owned by policing across the UK they're published by the college but they're also co-badged uh, with the National Police Chiefs Council and that's you know, really learning from what public health works well is about that seeking to, well, is to understand the causes of the causes for a population at large um, which is if you like the, you know, the primary prevention the secondary element there is about you know, if you've got an emerging problem how you stop it becoming an established one and then the tertiary prevention is to stopping something become a crisis and really intervening in real pinch points um, sometimes on an individual level and of course policing has a role in all of that uh, for this kind of space so more local policing is absolutely a universal service, of course. We all need that, um, and it's something we know the public cry out for. But 
you know, and that I'm sure will come, but it isn't the answer to everything. But there's also, when you go to the tertiary, the acute aspect, and that's where the real tragedy, the real misery, the real fear comes in, and it's a tertiary prevention activity where you've really got that crisis that Rob has talked about. Um, and enforcement is a really important part of that. You know, there are certain things that only the police can do, and the police should do that. And we are, you know, to do the enforcement element, but we also need to do more broad brush. But it also needs great technology. We need to understand the ethics of things like AI and be comfortable in using that for intelligence gathering. Carefully regulated, transparently used, but we need to understand there's a role for great technology in that. We need sentencing which deters as well as protects the public, as well as which punishes, and as well as which generally offers rehabilitation. Um, I heard one social commentator uh, describe punishment as a national sport in the UK. Um, we need to kind of wrestle with that and we need to work out uh, what, um, what, you know, what we expect from our sentencing. Um, drugs policy you've talked about um, and being, viewing drugs at a public, as, a, as, as a public health issue. I don't think you'll find a police force up and down this country that doesn't deal with drugs as harm. And they focus on drug prevention, you know, drug harm caused, and that's where they put their <coughs> operational endeavours. That's the way policing operates today. And we do need to be much more on the front foot, though, about taking the fight to the criminals, much more proactive capability, much more cohesion. And there's already a lot, but much greater cohesion across the wider law enforcement space. And to Craig Mackey's review of the, of the serious organised crime law enforcement system, we'll report later this year and will no doubt help us in that. Um, there's also something about the market. I was reading only over the weekend that lots of cocaine dealers on the dark web are targeting socially aware drug users by marketing their cocaine as ethically sourced and conflict free. <laughs> There's a market for it. Now, the counter argument to that is, yes, but I can't go out and buy legal drugs, therefore I am forced to go down uh, an illegal drug market. And I, and I know that that is a, a, a debate. But what I don't hear is people even worrying about the ethics of this stuff. And they absolutely ought to worry about the ethics of this stuff because of the rapes and the murders and the fear that brings it to their door on a Saturday night. Um, so I don't believe there is a predictable outcome for young people in this space. I think it's really hard. And I think to your point that we need to not just carry on doing what we've always done. Uh, but it's not all or nothing. It's not all enforcement and it's not all early intervention. It is a blend of across all of that. Um, and I think there is a really important role for policing, which Rob, your report brings out, around that kind of delicate balance uh, and professional expertise and voice which policing has to be uh, an experienced and an influential element within it. But you're right, it's not just all sticking it on the toes of policing, because frankly we are not you know, the agency who can do that alone, but we absolutely are up for our part in every step. Thank, Thank you very much indeed. Um, Simon, you, you've joined in uh, late in the day in this process. It'd be really interesting to get your perspective um, on what's, what we've produced out of all of this. Indeed, thank you. Uh, so first of all, I would say uh, well done, Robert, uh, for pulling all this together. It is not easy summarising the history of gangs in the UK uh, as you did in the first part of the, the, the report, so uh, well done. Um, I guess my role now is that of a critical friend, so I'm going to uh, make some comments which will bring up aspects of uh, nuance, uh, perhaps academic perspective, but more specifically perhaps about emphasis. 
So there's nothing in the report that I fundamentally disagree with. You'll be delighted to hear. But I also recognise what I would call the Scottish voice in there, and I say that because I have one. Um, and I'm, I'm sensing a bit of a blend of what I might call the Scottish model and the English model. Um, and I, so I can feel a blend. It's a bit like adding water to whiskey, if, if such a thing was ever possible. Um, and I'll explain what I mean about that uh, in a minute. But I, I'm pleased we are now having an open debate about gangs because for a very long time that debate was stifled in the UK. And from about uh, the turn of the century, it was very clear to us that, uh, or to certain academics and perhaps the police and some journalists, very clear to us that things were changing. And yet there was a great deal of resistance from certain individuals towards that. And there were some sociologists, uh, academics in the United Kingdom, who uh, pitched their, um, uh, their flag very much against the fact that gangs existed. In fact, uh, called them, um, talked very openly about gang talk, people engaged in gang talk, people uh, trying to manufacture gangs out of moral panic and uh, social construction. And I think that was a very distracting um, period. And I think we are probably, at least academically, 10 or 15 years behind where we should otherwise be because of that. Uh, and academics in the room, and there are quite a few, will recognize, of course, the academic beef between uh, John Pitts, who's with us today, um, and uh, Simon Holdsworth. Um, Simon lost that argument, which is perhaps why he's not here with us today. <laughs> but um, <coughs> John's view, to which I subscribed, was that gangs are here, they're real, they are impacting in communities, they're dangerous, and they're not imported from the UK. They're homegrown. They're our responsibility. And they come very much from our poverty and our deprivation and our inequality, as gangs do around the world. Whether we're talking about Glasgow, London, uh, Cape Town, Rio de Janeiro or, or Los Angeles, whatever. The common wellspring of gangs is poverty, deprivation and inequality. So that said, it's clear, I think, that um, the view we have now in London is that something has changed. Something fundamental has changed. It's not just simply an evolution or a progression from one type to another. There's something in the air. Something has changed. And I put this down to a convergence of three things. It's a convergence of the evolution of the gang, the evolution of drug markets, and of course the accelerant effect of social media. And what I've learned from uh, working in this area quite extensively now for uh, a good many years is that gangs have evolved in uh, surprising ways. They have got uh, much younger at one end, much older at the other end. People are not maturing out as they once did before. So you have a longer continuum younger, older, and that effectively means just more people in the game. And if you have more people in the game, you're just more people. That's greater competition. 
And I've never sus- subscribed to the view that the gang is uh, uh, an alternative family. It's, that feels too 1960s social work for me. I describe the gang as a social arena of conflict and competition. And when you interview these young people, you find that trust is very ephemeral. It comes, it goes. It's there for a few weeks until somebody disses you or runs off with your girlfriend or your money, and then the trust evaporates. And then the violence comes very quickly. So in this arena of social competition, it's much more complex, much more difficult to reach the top. How do you become top boy if there's now another 50 people in the same game as you? Well, you have to bring something different. You have to accelerate your competition. You have to achieve competitive advantage. And you do that by bringing forms of ultra-violence. It's no longer good enough just to stab somebody in the backside. You have to do something more severe. You have to stab them multiple times in front of their friends as they leave the cinema. Maybe you have to throw acid. You have to do something really dramatic. So that greater competition within gangs and between gangs is largely what is driving a lot of the violence. Not all of it, but much of it. In addition to that, we've got uh, emerging county lines. The drug markets in London are saturated. People have moved out in the expectation of greater profit. Drug markets and county lines are very highly controlled. What you find there is you find a high level of control within the gang who are running that line. They will control their boys, their runners, their dealers very, very specifically. And if they fall out of line, then heaven help them. Violence will ensue. And then, of course, you've got social media. Social media uh, may be a place that some of us don't understand. We, uh, I'm thinking I can speak for most of the age groups, with the possible exception of yourself, no, we are not digital natives here. This is not our uh, recognised kind of landscape, but for young people it is. And the gang has moved in whatever form it may have into that space. So the gang now operates in the online space as well as in the territorial space. Anything and everything that took place on the estate, in the territory, now takes place online. And it acts as an accelerant. And it acts as a place that will inflame uh, beef and inflame um, conflict. Moving now more specifically to um, the report, Robert, if I may. Um, You very clearly talk about um, street gangs, young street gangs, young criminal gangs, organised crime groups. (coughs) A couple of comments there, if I may. Uh, You talk at some length about recreational uh, aspects, especially with the younger, um, young street gangs. Uh, And I'm feeling very much now as if that is something that has passed in London. Uh, I think that is still there in Glasgow. I've lived and worked in Glasgow. I recognise that the young people there are still heavily involved in recreational violence. Uh, In London, however, though, you can be dealing crack and heroin at age 12, 13 and 14. 
So that situation here perhaps is different. Uh, again, what jumps out of the report for me are some issues around definition. I feel now as if the uh, street gang has blurred somewhat with the lower tier of organised crime. And I think we as academics and practitioners and the police need to have a better handle on that. How exactly does that work? Uh, what are the differences if they still exist? And of course in London we would perhaps call this more differently uh, issues around youngers, olders and elders. And that's the kind of um, uh, definitional breaks that we might recognise here in London. But I do wonder now if the London model is just so different from everywhere else. Do we now need to start looking at uh, how gangs present in Glasgow, how they present in Liverpool and Manchester, and how they present here in London? Because when I'm interviewing young people, when I'm sitting in a crack house or a trap house interviewing boys who are making £1,000 a week running county lines, I ask them all of these questions. And what I feel now is, if the, is that the violence here in London is markedly different from elsewhere. We have regular kidnapping, an extraordinary issue. I, I, something I always thought was the premise of, of maybe South America or Central America. It's a regular fact here now. We have the throwing of acid, we have moped crime, we have uh, boys mounting the pavement on mopeds to do robbery. And Alarmingly, we now have what I call hunting packs. These are young people who group up together in a stolen car and they go out specifically to hunt an individual. When they find that individual, they will use the car as a weapon to mount the pavement, knock the person off their, their bike or um, as a pedestrian, knock them over, leave the car and then stab them to death. And I'm thinking here of the murders of Kieran Prince and Jason Moody. We have uh, the enormous influence of uh, drill music. Again, generating or adding the kind of oral backdrop of violence around all of these things. And in London, what we've, I think we, we sense this. We sense that there are now communities of fear. I've worked in Glasgow and many of these states, and you're, uh, likewise yourself and Paisley, and I know that there's a, a, a kind of um, hardened crystallised um, uh, acceptance of violence and I don't know if we've got to that point quite yet in London. I sense a great deal of fear when I go out to these communities and particularly amongst young people. Uh, so just moving to the end, um, I notice a lot of talk about the public health model and of course that's the uh, current uh, en vogue and it links us again back to Glasgow. I think as politicians are scrambling for ideas and answers and policy uh, venues, the, we have to tread this with some caution. We have to tread with caution around the vocabulary. I understand the vocabulary around uh, the public health model and treating violence as a disease, but when we then move to talk about uh, isolating communities or cutting out the cancer of a community because of the violence or that a community is diseased I start to pull back from the vocabulary at that point. Glasgow of course had success very much in the East End around its violent reduction model. 
very um, much located in one part of the city, not the totality of it. Glasgow is the size of two London boroughs. It's a unitary authority. It is homogenous in its ethnicity. The violence there is recreational. Much of it is alcohol-driven, especially at the younger ages. It's intergenerational. Young people will be thoroughly engaged and pushed by their grandfathers and their fathers to have a few pints, run down the stairs, and then kick hell out of the boys from the next block. Those days have gone in London. We don't have that anymore. And I do wonder, with the violence reduction model in Glasgow, if uh, gentrification and government measures to reduce alcohol have perhaps also played a factor in there, which is rather underplayed in the pr promotion of it. In terms of the recommendations of the report, I, I thoroughly agree with all of them. <coughs> uh, partnership working for me is absolutely crucial, and uh, I think that has to be... Um, fully acknowledged and taken on board. What is missing from here is perhaps asking young people. I would have liked to have seen that perhaps more front and centre as a recommendation. Uh, I think for me it's important that we find any solution to this issue with young people. We don't need to find solutions to young people. So in terms of the recommendations, I think they're grand. I think maybe, if anything for me, the situation is more serious and some of the recommendations are a little bit underplayed. So to finish off, I would say, <clears throat> and I'm going to read here, how do we get ahead of this? I believe we do not have the policing or the partnership structures to address this problem successfully now or over the long term. We face a 21st century problem with 20th century structures, 20th century policies and organisations. These are culturally siloed, operationally slow, unresponsive, unmodernised, unadjusted, technologically ill-equipped, inefficient and unsuitable. And I think we need a radically new way of working in order to address this challenge. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. <coughs> no, yeah. come from a rather different perspective, so it'd be fascinating to hear how you respond to Hello, my name is Mr. Noel Williams. I am a criminal justice and social justice policy advisor. I was formerly on the set of social justice. But I also have Professor Pitzinger, and he was my lecturer, so I'm from his school of thought 100% too. Uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll give you a bit of an overview, and I'll start like this. Uh, we talk about generational crime in here and generational criminals, but just for one moment, picture a young boy whose dad's been to prison, his mother's been to prison, his dad cannot read and write. His mother can barely read and write. They already have problems of authority. They grew up in the 80s when Brixton had Brixton rights, and that's the part of South London where I come from. So by the time they've got me, my brother, and my sisters in the 90s, we've already got our back up about social issues in the country. We don't want social services in the house. Can you imagine, when I'm going to school being a bit of a naughty little boy, my dad's coming home saying, don't worry about that. He's got more issues with the teacher. So that was my life until I was 10. 
and I was stationed at school. Between the age of 10 to 13, I committed enough crimes that I was in prison by 13 for five years. I was kicked out of school, kicked out of the behavioural school I was sent to. I was left on the streets to be, to me, a victim of people who were older than me. At the time, I felt like, you know, these are the boys around and I want to be part of it. And, you know, if I go home, my mum's not at home, she's at work. So that's another thing we need to always remember when everyone wants to say, blame the parents, single families. My mother worked. What do you want her to do? Not work? Then we've got another problem. She's scrounging off the system. And all of a sudden, other people have got a problem. You know, what I'm trying to say is life isn't easy if that's how a young person starts their life. And I personally feel, as well as my parents, who could have did a bit more and maybe been a bit more liberal and come out of their house and been a little more, you know, let's be open to what's out there. However, with the cultural background I come from, which is a West Indian, Jamaican sort of background, we can tell for decades that's not been the case. And I don't want to sound like I'm putting too much doom and gloom on the matter. However, uh, I had gone to prison from the age of 13 and didn't stop going there till 22. That's a good span. I could have been a doctor if I had put nine years into something else in life. Nine years of literally wasting your life and your time. But I was fortunate enough that I got my GCSEs and A-levels in prison. When the youth establishment was good, was structured. I kind of agree with Simon. I think we're at a broken point if we look at the prison system to when I was there to where we are now. It's a totally different place and you don't even get offered GCSEs anymore. So that in itself for me to come out at the age of 20 and I first time ever going to an adult prison I went to Pentonville. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. So all this stuff in the news where they say prison's a holiday camp. No, it's not a holiday camp. You don't want to live with rats. You don't want to live with cockroaches. You don't want all of that stuff either. And you're just a human being. One needs to be treated and feel humane to start behaving humane. That is not rocket science. That is fact. <clears throat> so I like to tell people that little bit of the story before we get into the good glow on how I became who I am today. <laughs> and that's just a normal basic story about a lot of people growing up in London, whether you're a boy or whether you're a girl. But at the age of 13 when I was arrested, I was arrested by a police officer. His name's Dennis Butcher. I don't know where he is in the world now. I saw him two years ago and we went out for a drink and things were great. But at the time, I was a 13-year-old young man who had been exploited, if we use current terminology, by people who would be classed as a street gang doing county lines. At the age of 12, I was in a crack house selling that crack, staying up for 14 hours, can't go home. These are just experiences that somebody has. At the same time I had transferable skills, I can work for 14 hours. <laughs> a doctor thought I was a bit legendary, and it's only until he said it, I thought I could do much more with my life. And as this report kind of alludes to, it's not just about the wrapped around services and the joint care <coughs> you can get from charities or you can get from people working in the voluntary sector. It's also about giving people a chance. Generationally, nobody gave my dad a chance. So who was going <coughs> to give me a chance? My own father didn't give me a chance. I'm one of the first people in my whole family to go to university. As I said, I had a wonderful professor who would whisper things in my ear and made sure I tried harder than everybody else and ensured that I was going to go to a place of where I am now. And I just want to put that out there before I get into the few recommendations that I really like and want to pick apart. That actually, while we sit here and talk about gangs and we talk about the violence and the stuff that perpetuates these things, there's some <coughs> heroes in the police force and absolutely wonderful people working in prisons. 
there's people who are academics leading things like this and we need to actually take a look at ourselves and start saying we need to take forward a lot of the recommendations that we've been hearing about for 10 years because that's going to change people's lives. And lastly, only because you're in front of me and I, I can just see it there, that what we need is also people who are open to accepting that young people also need a chance when they're younger before they get into the organised crime part and they get into perpetuity always committing crime and as you said they're not deviating at 25 anymore <coughs> even when you have a child most of the time you would deviate from crime if you've got something bigger than yourself that does not happen anymore so therefore we need to start looking at it as a, as a bigger situation and start treating younger people especially when you said terminology I love that you know what terminology do we use with younger people um, I lead on to saying that because there's a recommendation I think it's number four in the booklets if you look and it's to do with criminal records now for a long time, a very, very long time, the, we've been talking about doing something with criminal records. How do we do it? We don't want to go too far. But look, if somebody's 30, 40 year old and they've committed a crime at the age of 15, I'm not saying we have to, but I would also use this report to back up that why can't we have boards or why can't we have a period of time where they can show that they can change themselves and change their lives? People can't get deposits on their houses, they can't fly to certain places in the world, they can't get certain jobs. And some of the things that people have literally done when they were young are quite minuscule. Not me, personally. I'm, I'm advocating for everybody else. However, <laughs> you know, but I know, I know a woman who's 40 now, bless her, and she was at school when she had a piece of tissue. And she literally just lit it on fire and put it in the bin. That's arson. That's a massive crime. If you're someone who knows about sort of what we, how we class crime in this country, arson's quite a big thing. And she can't work in a nursery, for instance, or she can go into social services. And for me, especially for someone like myself, I want the next generation of young people to have role models, but not just role models who have been good and role models who have gone down the road that way, but role models who have been involved in crime. Mm. That's why we have things like Ban the Box. That's why I really commend the Minister of Justice. They're, they're for, at the foreground, people like Timpsons and Boots. But we really need to start changing the way we look at, the way we treat people who may have offended in their lives. As this report also alludes to, there's what I would compare with two types of young people nowadays. People who associate with gang members who are just living in their area might do it in passing. and Maybe a bit of Jack the Lad between the age of... 11 till 18 but before you know it they're gone and they're really getting on in life and if they haven't got a criminal record trust me some of these people are working in banks and you wouldn't have a clue but then on the other side of it what do you say to a young person who's gone to prison at the age of 15 served his time for three years come out at 18 now wants to go to university and he's first being told sorry you have a criminal record where do we possibly think that young person is going to end up where do you think the skills he has for an 18-year-old, where's the respect going to come from? Where's his adulation? So when we think about this report, I love it, by the way, I'm in for it. I just don't think it went far enough um, in exploring things like why young people, for me, are in the situation that they're in. And I'll, I'll just kind of further go to your point, Simon, about social media. I was taught this years ago, but I was also taught this at, at, at university. No matter what sort of uh, people came, punks, rocks, mods, whatever, music and culture came with it. What we see in drill music now is an expression of young people just living their lives, to be quite frank. And when I listen to it, I think it's like poetry. I, I, I feel the pain. I, however, when it's being transferred and other people are listening to it, it's almost like a battle anthem. It's almost like a, a, 
a way of people feeling like they're gearing themselves up without the rock and roll and the drugs and the this is the other part of it. It's, it's for me, quite confusing and it's quite new. And if we don't get a grip on social media and how young people sort of involve themselves and, and deal with social media and how they interact with social media, we're going to be found wanting in a couple of years' time. Um, I, I don't want to end on doom and gloom because I'm never a doom and gloom person. So what, what I want to say is parts of this report which have talked about uh, multi-agency working, that's just a lovely word people like to throw out. But I'm also the chairman of a National Counterterrorism Advisory Group, so I'm, I'm fully in the middle here. I'm not on any side of left. Or, but I have to say, in my other hat, as chairman as London Village Network, we work with people and we call something called power of the hour. No matter what job you have, you can come and give an hour to a young person. That's multi-agency working as well. With your local community, it doesn't always have to be at the, the end of the NHS or you know, charities or the police working with, because at the end of the day, Community policing is what we're missing. I said this about two years ago in a conference where Olivia was, so I'm not just pulling out of a hat. I've been saying this for a while. For me, community policing was exactly what got me out of a gang. And I've left it kind of to my last piece because I think it's where the magic gets knit together. The same man, Dennis Butcher, I told you about who arrested me at 13, also come to me at 21 when I was sitting in Lewiston Police Station for a very, very serious crime and said to me, but I know all of you, I know everybody's dad, you're the smartest one in the bunch, and you clearly wasn't there. And I said, well, I wasn't. He said, well, why don't you get away from this? You can do much more with your life. He was the first person in my life, apart from a prison officer, who told me I could be more than what I was. Not even my mum and dad could see I could be more than what I was, because they didn't know any more themselves. There's clarity in this report that we need to bring forward and not just you know, lovely, fluffy academics like myself and everybody else saying lovely things about it, but we need to start putting this into action. And I'll lastly end on political will, because no matter how you sit, the elephant in the room is the current government seem not to be moving. That doesn't mean that they won't. Also, the justice ministers change more times than any other minister. That seems like the bag that nobody wants. We need to start getting serious about justice. We need to start backing our police force and giving them back what they need and we don't need promises, we need to start seeing some action. If you start backing the instruments that can enforce the law and you start investing in the tools to help with prevention and the cures, I do not think for a second, I move Simon, I don't think it can be eradicated but I think we can get back to a place where people like myself um, can be pushed forward and used as role models for other young people, and that can probably make a change to the situation that we see ourselves in of perpetual violence within our, our cities up and down the UK. But yeah, I won't bang on too much more, because um, I'm literally a fan and I'm not even going to be a critic. I'm, I'm, I'm literally going to stop. No, I'm not. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> one, more, one more set of people to advocate for. Females. Um, there was something written about females in here, and I'm very, very glad there is. And there is differentials of how females get involved in crime and what leads them to continuously get involved in crime. But I know my dear mum died on Boxing Day, so she won't mind me saying, she didn't mind me saying before, but my mum went to prison for the what we would call the classic crime for a woman, which is importation of drugs. Well, not classic, but <laughs> importation of drugs. Therefore... It's that classic, the man uses the woman, and it's love, and before you know it, she's now sitting in a cell, yeah. having to do a very long time in prison. 
as she's fought forward with her life, she never ever went down that street again. But equally, when I'm talking about prisons kind of letting down young people, also the experience for women in prison is absolutely horrendous. And when they come back out, the, the social services has got to be dealt with, housing's got to be dealt with, people are left out on the street, people are being released with no form of address. That's also somebody's mum. I grew up with people whose mothers were those women I'm talking about. And at the age of 11, 13, when I'm going to prison, so is my pal, and his mum's also there. So we really need to start taking a wider view of how we <coughs> help our younger women who are getting involved in crime and offending to stand away from that sort of path before that becomes something that is generational within their house and the norm. Yeah, I advocate for everybody off my checklist, so thank you very much. Thank you very much. We've got 20 minutes or so for uh, questions and comments from... Uh, from you. Any? Yes. Hello, um, my name's Ben Lindsay. I'm a pastor in a church in South East London. I'm also CEO of the church for Power of Fight. And along with Martin, I sit on the Bryant's production unit. Um, just a bit calm. So, first of all, I just want to thank everybody. I think it's brilliant. Um, just a couple of comments. I am really interested in number five of your recommendations about cultural competency. I think that is such a brilliant thing to bring into the discussion. We don't often hear the term cultural competency, so well done on that. I just wanted to <coughs> two questions and one point. So that you mentioned cultural competency, which is great. We know that London isn't Scotland, as you've mentioned. The hyper-diversity we have in the 32 boroughs of, of, of London, I always talk to Sadiq Khan and say this is an issue and why we can't drag and drop uh, the Scottish model into the mix. Mm -hmm. But one thing I want, I want to ask is um, how can you actually address the historic distress <coughs> between ethnic minorities and the police? If we're going to talk about London being hyper-diverse and cultural competency, that is a big issue, which is historic, and as long as I've been alive, um, which is almost for what, just over 40 years in London, that's something which generationally we've had a problem with. So just, I would like just a response on that. I think also the second question I've got is, how do we address the disproportionality and the lack of cultural competency in the police force? Because if we actually look at who's got the top jobs in the police force, a lot of them don't look like me. I appreciate that you were loaded in the building somewhere. You know, I the <laughs> but I think I need more than just Thank you. So that'd be great. And then just a point on the comment on drill. I just think it's a little bit too easy just to say drill's the problem without actually looking at it from a wider perspective. But we need to acknowledge the people who are controlling social media, controlling YouTube, who are controlling radio stations, the controllers of those radio stations who allow the music to go on those radio stations, certain big DJs who are bringing these young artists in, giving them a lot of money. We can't just say it's the young person and drill. We've got to go wider to acknowledge who's actually controlling the music market. And unfortunately, it tends to be white middle class men who are doing that, but they seem to not really come into the conversation in the equation when we're talking about criminality. Thank you. Well, there's three meaty things. Let's just pick them up straight away. Anyone want to comment on the questions? Um, I can start. Yeah. Like say, um, I, I won't comment on drill. I'll leave that to, to others. But uh, the point about, and I know I've not worked in London, so so I you know I don't speak for London, but I have been around policing uh, a long old time. So you know, please take it in in that vein. 
Um, I think the trust in the police and the, as you say, you know, what a senior cops look like, they don't look like you. That, that, there's a real kind of overlap there for a start. Um, so, you know, we are all as, as police forces, we're all monopoly public sector providers. So that monopoly element really, I think, comes through and we need to take very seriously it. And I know I do and my colleagues do too around transparency. I have a phrase with transparent even when it hurts. You know, because we are the only police that an area can get, Hampshire for me, but the Met here, um, that's so important and we should we should hold that really lightly in our hand, Ben, and we should, you know, make sure that we are showing and demonstrating. And I think uh, we are one of the most transparent and accountable public services there is. And that is often why, you know, we get it wrong and, and everybody knows because actually we're up there saying so. I don't sit here saying all policing is perfect by any means, but I am fiercely proud of policing and I think we do try and be transparent in that way. That piece about um, what do we look, and, and so you're right, there are far too many white men um, who are chief constables, um, and we would all say that, and, and, and that is being championed by white men in a really positive and great way. And there's loads going on <coughs> with police and crime commissioners, there's some in the room, there's loads going on from the College of Policing, there's loads going on from police leadership itself around really you know, tangible, person by person, positive action into the most senior roles in policing. I am, you know, I am as frustrated as you are around how slow that is to shift. The problem is we can only fish within our own pool. So, you know, it is really hard. There are some great examples of people coming in direct entry into policing, but that's still really, you know, superintendent level and that's still tiny numbers and it's still not um, at chief officer level. It is shifting, but it's not shifting fast enough. And one of the big pluses around the 20,000 officer and 6,500 police staff uplift we are promised and I genuinely believe will come you know we, we, let, let's you know work with that you know work with the grain on it we are determined as a service not just to grow we can get 20,000 people in easy well yeah there are challenges but we can get them in our, we are really clear and we're really committed to growing well um, because we've had 10 years of shrinking we've got a three-year growth here now and we are going to make every last bit of that work and if we don't look back in three years time and see a visibly different police workforce on the back of this uplift then we have failed anyone else on the panel want to respond to what we've heard i'll pick up the point and yep. drill if i can go for it yeah uh, so drill, I mean, it's a very complex issue and it doesn't lend itself to a quick kind of, you know, um, back and forth. Um, the question, of course, is always, is it a cultural mirror or and representation of the cultural lived experience of young people in terms of uh, poetry and prose? And I would say, yes, it is. Or is it uh, an, an instigator and accelerator of violence? And I would say, yes, it is. So my perspective is it's both things at once. And it can be both things at once. It does, we, d we don't have to be in a dichotomy here where it's either one or the other. The vast majority of it, I think, is harmless. I think it is poetic. I am eminently depressed when I read and interpret the, the lyrics. But that is the lived experience of many young people, and I get that. However, that said, there are occasions where I have um, interpreted, usually with the help of some 15-year-old young kid who gets the slang better than I do, but uh, when I have interpreted some of the lyrics, there, uh, there's maybe 5% or less of drill that talks very specifically about a specific incident 
about stabbing a young person, that young person, at this address, on that estate, on that day, and how he, you know, bled to death in front of his mother and, you know, she was bawling her eyes out. And I think at that point, it goes too far. And it appears to me to cross the line. Some drill also is very much about the promotion and marketing of drugs. I get that. That's, again, part of the lived experience. But, uh, again, you know, one does question whether or not some of these are actually advertorials for for gangs in ways that we haven't perhaps recognised. Um, so I think there's a lot there to explore. It's not being researched. I would uh, advocate and recommend that we do do that. We need to get deep down and dirty with this in the way that we're just not at the moment. Um, and it's a complex issue. Just to say, I don't disagree with anything you've said. I, you're talking to some of these very children who have been drill artists. I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I'm just saying that the focus is too much on the... Oh, yeah, sorry. And, that, and on and that, you're on absolutely right. Yeah. A lot of money you're right. That's on that, you're right. Money. Yeah. A lot of people want to come in. Um, let's just... Ah, we're going to run out of time. Let's, let's, let's pull three. One, two, and three. So, yeah. Okay, I'll try to be Roger Grave. I'm a filmmaker and a criminologist at the LSE. I've also been a member of the Met IAG on Race for 20 years since the McPherson report. And I've done a lot of work with gangs in America as well, in Texas and Boston and California. And although the cultural competence of recognizing the difference is very important, the thing that I've seen that is common in my experience, and no, I'm delighted to hear your speech. I thought that was terrific, absolutely, on spot on. And there are three things that aren't quite as emphasizing your report, Robert, as, as I would like it to be. One is fear. I found a great many young people who did join gangs simply out of fear. They were frightened of, of their being literally attacked themselves and no confidence at all in the police or anybody else to protect them. And the closure of youth clubs, the closure of refuges, anywhere safe, um, drove them into gangs. And the, the peak hour for danger for young people isn't at night, it's after school. On the way home from school, they were most vulnerable. And the notion that anybody did anything about this was, was experimental in Boston, it lasted a little while, and then it disappeared again. And it cut down the teenage pregnancy rate as well as the violence against youth. And the second thing is attention, because all the young people I know, I've ne literally, having done this for God knows how many years, I've never been threatened or had anything taken from me, because I gave them both attention and respect. And respect is the third word that I feel needs more emphasis in the report. And most of the young offenders that I've dealt with did what they did, including violence and shooting each other, out of respect. You talked about dissing, uh, Simon. That's really serious stuff. And people have given their entire lives for the notion of respect, which is so tortured. And I've been in courts when I said to myself, here are all these graduates paying attention for the first time to some poor young guy who wanted to do something good with their lives, but they simply, every school was shut, every opportunity was closed, and they ended up getting respect and attention by doing the wrong thing because that was the only way they could get it. So it seems to me brilliant work. I'd like to see this report read by a lot of people and discussed, but those three words I'd like to see added. Um, I'm Ross Duker um, from the University of the West of Scotland. <coughs> so I've been working with gang members in Glasgow for many years, and I've also studied gang intervention programs in America 
in places like Los Angeles and also Cincinnati, Ohio. And I understand completely that I don't think we can lift the Scottish model um, and, and, and bring it to London, but what I think we can do is learn from it in the same way as in Glasgow, the VRU learned from American interventions because the Scottish model didn't begin as a Scottish model, <coughs> it was actually an American intervention that was brought over and adapted in Glasgow. Um, and I think one of the ingredients of the Scottish model as well as the work of the VRU was the important role of youth work, youth and outreach work, which is sometimes overlooked. Uh, and I just wonder if we need to maybe have more of an emphasis on the role of youth work in some of the recommendations in the report. Because in the east end of Glasgow, uh, it was youth workers night after night engaging with young people out in the streets, um, signposting them to interventions uh, that was part of the success. Uh, an Easter house in Glasgow, I was there last week, is a transformed place from what it was 10 years ago, largely because of those kind of youth and outreach uh, workers and, and the work they did, as well as the work of the, the VRU. Um, but also, do we not need to be looking maybe more at in international perspectives? Uh, so part of Glasgow's success has been studying homeboy industries in Los Angeles, and I know Robert mentions it in the report, studying the Cincinnati Initiative to reduce violence. There's also been incredibly uh, pioneering work being done in places like Denmark that I've been uh, studying recently. That many years I've worked with uh, motorcycle <coughs> gang members who are involved in things like kidnapping mm -hmm. and involved in torture and all the things we're seeing in London. Uh, so I wonder if we need to A, look at youth work and outreach work more again, and also to look at international models and work with international partners. Thank you. Uh, Marion Fitzgerald, University of Kent. Uh, from a lot of my own work over the years, uh, three points uh, that have come to me from what's been said, uh, and as briefly as I can. Uh, I think we can get much too hung up on the whole question about disproportionality and ethnicity. My own experience actually doing a lot of work in schools in, um, in, in parts of London, uh, I found more hostility deeply entrenched towards the police in the old Docklands, white working class. I found it in West Yorkshire, in uh, areas which have been part of the miners' strike. Deep, deep, deep hostility, something I never found in London. And I'm quite sure that you have the same sort of experience in the sort of um, areas that you've worked in in Glasgow as well. It's not just, and we can just get to ourselves in not so that about drill. I remember uh, a group of boys uh, having a discussion, it was when I was doing the work on street crime, I think, um, about, it was then, it was rap music. And they came to the conclusion, and it made sense, that, and as a woman, I can enjoy listening to the Rolling Stones under my thumb. And if there's any more anti-feminist lyrics, you know, I'd like to, someone to tell me where to find them. But I enjoy the music, and that's what they were saying. They would say, you can enjoy the music, it doesn't mean you agree with the lyrics, but they also said that they could see that if some particular kids, and the ones they would describe as the mad ones, and they know who they are, are particularly susceptible, they could see how it might influence them. them. But the idea that generically <coughs> it's taboo and it's wrong and that people shouldn't be allowed to listen to it is just sort of elite, middle-class, white rubbish. Um, but finally, the one that really 
rings a bell with me and nobody's talked about. I was so glad to be at Broadhub this evening. The business is about loss. I mean, so many times you could talk about marital breakdown or relationship breakdown. I'll never forget doing, it was actually a television program I did, and I, I used the same sort of script that I used in the street crime study. Um, and there was a group of, of boys that had been brought together, one of whom, very, very thoughtful, didn't say very much, but you know how in a group you can tell when they say something it's going to have real weight. It turned out later on that he was up on a charge of a home robbery. And I don't know where it came from, but I said at one point to this group, I said, you've got a, a nephew, say, so it's, you know, no point talking about your son, because they're not going to have, be allowed to have anything to do with their sons. And that is a source of grief. But you've got a nephew, say, your sister's got a baby boy. What's going to make the difference to whether, and I didn't know where he was at until afterwards, what's going to make the difference to whether that boy grows up with all the things that you want and aspire to and has a successful life and does it legitimately. And he burst out and he said, it's got to have, it's got to have a father. It's got to have a father that's going to um, beat it if it gets into trouble. It's going to keep it away from right, teach it right and wrong. Keep it away from trouble, beat it if it gets into trouble. And it's got to have a father instead of 10 different drug dealers coming in and out of its mother's life. But we forget that a lot of those men that come in and out of their mother's lives, they become attached to, and suddenly they're gone, and they're the devil incarnate, and they will never see them again. There is grief over and over and over, and for boys that comes out as anger. Now, something that a group of girls said to me, the first uh, focus group that I did on the street kind of study, and at the end of it, these girls said, well, we're supposed to advise government. They said, they've got to interrupt the cycle. I said, well, what's the cycle? And the cycle is, and this ties in with that desperate need for men to look up to, the cycle they saw is that kids coming into secondary school, the older boys, I mean, they're not only looking, these kids are not just looking for who will protect them and for the flattery of, you know, having someone to protect them who looks out for them and so on. But that getting attention from older boys, they say they start recruiting them. And that transition to secondary school is a critical point. Some kids get badly lost at that point, they drop out and they're highly susceptible. But also, these girls, one of the girls said, it's not like, I mean, it's not like they're going to get lots of GCSEs. I said, how do they choose which ones they're going to group? They're quick. And so that flattery of they're very, very susceptible because of that need for approval and respect from an older male, that is absolutely critical. And of course, through their lives, in the yachts, in schools, whatever, it's all women. Their mums, the teachers, whoever's it, their social worker, whoever's it. That desperate need for, and that loss, those, all of that loss, a lot of that's coming out here. <coughs> and we have to start seeing that recognised. Thank you. We're, we're running out of time, and we just need to, to wind up, but there's, we just allow one more comment or question from the lady at the back. So Francis Blackson's from the Innovation Unit, and a very brief point, there was a passing reference to the vulnerability of some young people in the care system. So I just wanted to flag that when we go back to talking about prevention mm. and the importance of uh, children's services role and safeguard. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I'm sorry that we've, we've run out of time and uh, we do have to, to keep to a, a, a strict schedule. Um, so just to explain what we will do, um, we want to get this report out, circulated 
wide and far, and um, we're going to send do a mail shot to all chief constables and police and crime commissioners. And I feel a postscript coming on um, from what's come out of this evening. So we might just add a little bit of postscript to this uh, and get that out as far as possible. Please uh, do take copies. We've got other we've got spare copies down downstairs. Please take them and circulate them. But also, um, there are, it's available on our website. You can download it from, from the Cumberland Lodge website. So if you know people that might be interested, please do uh, uh, alert them to it. Please don't go. Please stay and have a drink. But also, would you please join me in thanking our panellists this evening.